Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. Hi everyone, I just wanted to take a minute before this episode to acknowledge the fact that since our last episode went out, the world has changed quite dramatically because of the pandemic and just wanted to acknowledge that and let everybody know that we here at JBM are thinking of everybody that's been affected. We know that it's had a huge impact on many candidates, clients, friends, families, livelihoods, and it's something that has affected us all in some shape or form. So from everyone at JBM, our heart goes out to everyone that has been affected. We also want to take the chance to thank all of the frontline workers that are doing their bit to keep our country going and saving so many lives. And also say to anybody that's listening that might be struggling or has been affected by this situation, we are here to help. So please don't hesitate to reach out if there is anything that we can do. Stay safe, everyone. Stay indoors. And we'll all get through this together. Thanks very much. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Moving on to a different career path will always be a daunting prospect, and it can be difficult to know how best to approach it. We regularly hear from candidates who are looking to make the shift and aren't always sure where to start, and equally from clients unsure about whether to take the risk on someone with a different or out of the ordinary background. So if you're in this position, then I hope you're going to love today's episode, as our guest tells you all about his remarkable career change. Chris Saverson has never been one to shy away from risk. Having started his career in the US Marine Corps as a Top Gun fighter pilot, he took his adventurous approach into his post-military career, successfully making the switch into leadership roles in the corporate and startup worlds. Chris has held senior positions across Barclays, Atlas Mara, Digicel, and most recently at PMI, and has lived across the US, Middle East, Switzerland, and the Caribbean. As Chris explains in today's episode, making a career change is going to be hard work, no matter what your background, but building a great network is the key to success. During our conversation, we elaborate further on the power of networking and dig deeper into how leveraging your innate capabilities can help you as a leader. Some of the topics we discuss include his experience of transitioning from a high-pressured, disciplined military career into the private sector and how he coped with that, plus how his background as a Marine taught him to be an enthusiastic leader and communicator. We talked about the importance of networking when changing careers and how best to find your tribe, as well as building great relationships both online and offline. And finally, his advice for building high-performing teams, from hiring people smarter than himself to his favourite interview question, which is certainly one that would catch you off guard. Chris is an amazing and charismatic leader, so it was fascinating to dig deeper into his diverse and exciting career journey. Chris has also been a candidate, client and friend, as well as a personal inspiration to me, so it was a real pleasure for me to have this chat with him. I'm sure you're all going to really enjoy this one, especially if any of you are fans of the movie Top Gun. So please sit back, 
relax, and enjoy this episode with the inspiring Chris Saverson. Welcome, Chris. It's Morning, great James. to see you again. Yeah, it's great um, to be here. Thanks for giving up the time and being our 40-minute mentor today. Thank you. I'd like to kick this off, as we like to, with a 30-second review of your CV, if that's all right. Okay, quick. Let's see if I can do it. So, I'm an American. Grew up in the United States in the state of Wisconsin on a dairy farm. Went to university at Carnegie Mellon University as a mechanical engineer. And then uh, my first kind of career, spent 20 years in the U.S. Marine Corps as an F-18 pilot. Uh, and then... Uh, as I was getting ready to retire, got an MBA, and then went into investment banking, then into corporate retail banking based in Dubai and running around Africa for a couple of years, then took over the transformation and CHR role of a telco based in Jamaica. And now I have uh, moved and my family's come with me to Switzerland and I help uh, lead the internal transformation or lead the internal transformation of Philip Morris International. Wow, that's a, a, a whistle-stop tour. Um, yes, yes. Uh, there's so many things there for us to discuss and unpack over the course of this conversation. But I'd like to kind of, I'd like to start at the beginning. So did you always want to be a pilot when you were growing up? And if not, what, what did you aspire to be? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we, so growing up on the dairy farm, father was a former Marine. And so a bit of history of uh, military service. And, you know, and I think the, the desire was definitely to get to university and, and had the opportunity to go to university on a scholarship paid for by the U.S. military, which made university free and then provided that opportunity. And, and while I was there, applied to go into aviation past that. And then it sounded like an exciting thing to do. And, and there we went. Amazing. Well, I know a lot of kids, anyone that might be listening, there's probably a few who, who aspired to do something similar and you had an incredible career. It sounded like there was clearly a, a pull in terms of a family pull to some extent to the military. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what that selection process was like when you decided to go for it and then I guess ultimately becoming a Marine and, you know, an F-18 Top Gun pilot? Sure. So yeah, it's, um, you know, I think with the family history and a bit of that innate desire that existed, I think that got everything going in that direction. You know, very fortunate to go to one of the top 25 universities in the U.S. And the so you kind of started an relatively an academic selection process. Mm-hmm. You had to be physically fit, played sports in, uh, in high school, in American high school. And that was uh, kind of got things going. The university went well, passed a flight physical. What does that involve, the flight physical? It's more of a, it's really a very in-depth annual checkup okay yeah okay. a little bit more in this in the it's stringent yeah and basically you have to be pretty much normally healthy okay and uh, and then uh, you got to be able to see well kind of the standard stuff and nothing that would prohibit uh you from uh, not flying especially in the fighter aviation because it's pretty physically demanding so past that past the flight aptitude test and then i was a marine officer so i got commissioned oh, i went to officer candidate school which is probably the most for the Marine Corps, the most rigorous selection part, which is about 30% attrition. So I passed that, graduated, got commissioned as a second lieutenant, and then I, as all Marines are infantry first. Okay. And so all of our enlisted Marines are riflemen. All of our brand new officers are, are potential platoon commanders. So I did six months of infantry training oh, wow. with all Marine lieutenants. And then, then I went to flight school. And so then you kind of start a selection process of it's basically based on your grades of how well you perform each flight, but you get, there's primary, intermediate, and advanced, and each stage was able to select up to jets and then the strike fighter, and then finally in the third stage, two F-18s. And then that starts the career in the F-18 uh, community, which was good. Uh, then, you know, the opportunity on the fighter side to go to Top Gun, you know, you're talking um, roughly five to seven Marine pilots, because the rest are Navy, because Top Gun is a Navy school, and the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. So five to seven Marine F-18 pilots a year go through Top Gun. Wow. So I was with one other uh, Marine pilot and, uh, and six other Navy pilots 
a long time ago, 2004. But uh, incredible. And there, it's about execution. You probably lose on average maybe one person a class, but it is not about just being able to talk about and brief and debrief the flight. But execution has to be not perfect, but very close. Right. You okay. must execute. Okay. And it's a focus on execution. And then, uh, yeah, then we drop, and then you graduate, get the patch, you'd go from there. It's absolutely fascinating. I can't think of, I don't know anyone else that's done that sort of, uh, come through that uh, incredible sort of life experience before. One of the things you, you clearly need to get to the top of the military and particularly, I guess, to become, to get into Top Gun is certain qualities. Um, I'd just be interested in, did you always feel you had instilled in you certain characteristics that held you in good stead for that selection process? It's a great question. I don't know if, if you know that you have what it's going to take, but, I, you know, there's some the things we know that are always helpful, right? You, you, you know, try to be fairly bright physically, but you got to withstand it. But then there's also the, the aspects of... Um, around endurance, uh, confidence, and then just, the, I think there's a lot of belief in yourself that you're going to be able to do this because you have to execute somebody that's quite individually based personal performance and then leading a flight and that performance of yourself and the rest of the flight and how well you lead them. So there's aviation leadership involved as well. Yet, you know, I think a lot of it comes around as you can imagine, the jokes will uh, stereotypify it, but uh, you need a bit of self-confidence, yeah. I think, yeah. to stand up there and, and get in and go. Yeah, because yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a lonely place. Yeah, okay. And you weren't inspired by Tom Cruise or anything oh, like that. Oh, yes. <laughs> you too. I do, I have three daughters. Yesterday we watched the second trailer for Top oh, Gun wow. Two. Okay. The first trailer's been out for maybe two three months. Okay. But they released yesterday, the day before. I did see that. Yeah. The second trailer for it. So does it give you chills? Yeah, it's it? amazing, right? Like, I mean, it's to it's a movie. Yeah. Uh, so it's not necessarily real. At the same time, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And the first one came out when I was 12. Wow. So as a young boy, probably a fairly influential time in my life. Amazing. And so there could be worse things to do. Yeah, definitely. So, so what does a, a typical day look like when you got through that selection process, you're effectively a Top Gun pilot. What does that look like? Yeah. So it, it's not as glamorous as it, uh, you would imagine. hope or it sounds. So a graduate of Top Gun is first and foremost, a teacher. So that is the role, right? So uh, you in squadrons, you go back in and um, your formal designation is you're a graduate level strike fighter tactics instructor. So you, that is the role you have. You are a strike fighter tactics instructor at the graduate level and you teach. Every squadron uh, in the Navy and Marine Corps will, will almost always have a current graduate of Top Gun. And they will be in, in this kind of what they call pilot training role or SFTI role for about a year to 18 months. And that's kind of the payback for going to Top Gun. You teach. And then you kind of go into this mindset, mindset where you, know, you brief, execute, and debrief. One flight a day, especially if they're high-level high training flights, can be a six, seven-hour process of intense teaching, briefing. The flight itself might only be an hour, hour and 15 minutes, maybe an hour and a half. And then you go into a two, three-hour debrief because that's where the learning is. The yeah. learning's in the debrief. You monitor execution, go to the debrief, find the learning points, and, and, and then the student or the younger pilot uh, hopefully improve uh, based on that. So it's, it's not uh, always that glamorous, but it's, it's important. And then you, you know, standardization, you know, there's, the, there's the, the way we want to do things and we, we, want people, we want people to fly and execute our tactics and you hold that standard. Yeah, amazing. I, I'm pretty sure there, are, there aren't many people listening. There may be some that are 
amateur pilots, but I don't think anyone will have had the experience of, of, of flying in a, in a fighter jet or in a combat situation. What's that experience like? Are you able to describe that for our listeners? And, and how did you cope with the pressure of that? And not just the pressure of doing it yourself, but also teaching others, which is clearly a huge part of, of what you did. Yeah, it probably is a bit hard to describe in a way, in, in, in some way, in you just get in and go. I mean, you're taught well and, and you just, and you do what you were taught and execute well. It, it will go well. You know, some things I think about is, you know, we, you know, this people have talked about, you know, especially combat flying is a lot of sheer boredom and it's not that boring per se, but there, there may not be that much going on. And then when the call comes in the radio and you need to support folks, it goes from zero to 105 seconds. And then you have to be on your A game. You know, and in, in when you, especially in training, it's one thing, but in real life, it's there's for the work we've been doing uh, recently in the last since really since the early 2000s, a lot of ground support. So friendly forces in contact with enemy forces very close to them. So the precision required and the discipline required is very high. That is quite stressful, exciting, but yet stressful uh, at the same time. It requires you just really have to be disciplined in the midst of that level of excitement and uh, adrenaline rush type things. It's kind of managing that adrenaline, I can uh, imagine, must be so difficult yeah, to do. It's, it's really, it, it can be really challenging. Some folks handle it better than others. And what we try to help folks and was helpful for me, I think even some of this down in the private sector is, is compartmentalization where, okay, we're taking off. Okay, well, let's take off, let's get joined up. Then we gotta go find the tanker. So let's get into over Iraq or Afghanistan, let's go find the tanker. It's probably at night, might be challenging. Get them on radar, join up on the tanker, let's get gas. Let's concentrate on getting fuel. The rest of the mission will come. You know, so let's concentrate on this. Let's not make a mistake here that keeps us from being able to execute the mission. And then we would go, then you go execute the mission. Like you go spend an hour, you know, over, overhead supporting someone. So you concentrate on that aspect and you're always monitoring your fuel. Then the time's up. Let's go back to the tanker and then we'll go back to support probably. And we'll go back to the tanker again and then we'll fly back to the ship. So you got to find mom. Because she's either, you know, depending on where we were in the Persian Gulf or the Gulf of Oman, and we need to find her and then get ready for our recovery at night. And then, of course, that in of itself is now a night carrier recovery, probably more stressful than anything else. And so it's get back in time, pause, get into holding, and mentally prepare to recover board the ship at night and recover. And then you can decompress and then move on. Wow. But compartmentalization, I think, is a key yeah. part of it and, and staying dis disciplined. Yeah, amazing. You alluded to there to some of the challenges that you have to face actually executing. When you look back at your time in the military, were there any particular instances that stand out to you as being particularly challenging experiences? And, and how did you overcome those at the time? So, you know, maybe a couple come to mind. I think some as a team and as a leader and some as an individual. So as a leader, I was fortunate to become the aircraft maintenance officer squadron, which is in the Marine Corps squadron, you have the commanding officer and the executive officer, the number one and number two. And then there's usually two key roles underneath. One is the operations officer, one is the aircraft maintenance officer. As you become more senior, you may have an opportunity to do both or one I was fortunate to have an opportunity to do both. And, and coming as the aircraft maintenance officer was extremely rewarding. And we were doing a, a four deployment to Asia, uh, we had 12 airplanes and, you know, roughly 200, 225 maintenance Marines, maintenance engineers that were going to go with us and uh, plus the rest of the pilots and the, and the team. And, and that role was, you know, the challenge of keeping high readiness rates with the aircraft, leading the Marines and motivating them in a way that they will deliver more than you would expect normally from them. I find, and our tools are different. You know, it's a fixed pay. It's a very public pay, so you can look it up. So it's fixed pay. 
really that uh, you can't pay bonuses. There's there's no bonuses. Promotions are you know based on a system, so it's very difficult to spot promote someone. It is possible, but difficult. And so you're left with the traditional tools of leadership, which is communication, compelling them with a good story and uh, communicating, being transparent with the challenges and the good things, and they will deliver well. So that was a great challenge uh, to lead those Marines and, and, and to succeed doing that. Uh, as an individual, Top Gun was probably the single most difficult thing that I did while in the Marines. And it was really just an execution piece. There's three phases, uh, dogfighting two ship, two, you and a wingman, which is an instructor, fighting an unknown number of adversaries. And then the third stage essentially is a four of the unknown, you and three other good guys versus an unknown number of adversaries. And, and in each phase, you can fail a flight. If you fail the second one, you're probably going home. And I think probably on purpose, you fail at least one in every flight, wow. okay. just to ramp the pressure up okay. a little bit. Wow. And I did, so I failed a flight each stage. And then the realization is I have multiple flights to go in, the, in this stage. And if I fail the next one, I go home. And not only do I go home, sort of the sort of the you know the team that I brought with the maintenance team. So I'd bring a few maintenance people to help support the jets, and it's a very visible failing. Huge pressure because everyone knows who's in every class. There's only four classes a year, so everyone who knows who's in each class. And if you go home, you don't go home alone, and uh, others will know. So it's a very high pressure. So fortunate it worked out. What a great time! And then um, I also spent a year getting a masters in strategy. Very very different than being in a squadron and also being uh, in Top Gun. I found a, a difficult transition to go back into the academic world, and especially around strategy, history, more of a liberal arts okay. style, okay. and uh, probably not my forte. <laughs> and so I made it. I wouldn't say I rocked the program, Interesting. but survived. Interesting. And, uh, however, what I do now is I use that year at the School of Advanced Warfighting is, has been set a very good base for how I think about strategy and planning. Mm-hmm and how we execute complex things in the private sector. Uh, so it's been in, yeah. uh, really based around the Marine Corps plan. And I process. guess to some extent, uh, and we'll come on to talk a bit more about your transition, but the challenges you faced in that unique set of circumstances set you up very well for anything else you come across because it's very hard to replicate that level of pressure. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Uh, on the flip side, just briefly, it would be, be good to hear for you what the highlights were from, from your military career. What, what stands out? Is there one particular moment? I don't know if there's one moment, but I, you know what I miss, and I think it was some of the greatest memories are around leading Marines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these young men and women are phenomenal and, and do great work and super motivated, generally bought into the vision. They, they are um, young, healthy, motivated, and they, and they want to win. And being around those folks is super rewarding. And, and I miss that at times. As you would expect, the private sector, we're not always as aligned and people aren't always as motivated as those folks. So I miss that. Uh, I miss some of the flying. Um, there's, you know, and so there were some thrilling moments, you know, in supporting, doing ground support for folks in Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly rewarding the sense of service and being trained to do something and then actually doing it yeah. is quite rewarding. And um, Do you ever fly out now? Do you ever get on a plane? No, nah, you know, it's interesting. Very little. I, my wife and I had a kind of a rule. I was going to buy an airplane within five years of retiring. Okay. We, we haven't made it. Um, <laughs> I think it's because we've ended up spending so much time outside the U.S., it's, I'll just be very frank, it's actually quite expensive. Yeah, yeah. You can do some little, small little airplanes, uh, lawnmowers with wings, but... Uh, I have not, uh, no, and, and probably will soon. We've been, it comes up more and more at the okay. dinner table. Yeah, I can um, imagine. It's, a, it's more, in Europe, just to be honest, it's more expensive than it is in yeah, the US. Yeah, sure, so sure. That makes it a little more difficult. Does it, do, and, and we, we won't dwell on it, but it's just fascinating for me. Going from fighting in a fighter jet, fl- flying a fighter jet, to a, 
I assume you wouldn't be buying a fighter jet. So how transferable is the skills just to, to fly an everyday plane? The, the basics are the same, essentially. So uh, it, uh, not I have flown uh, small like Cessna 172s and such. So maybe you have 20, 25 hours in a uh, Cessna 172. I got checked out in one flight. So I flew it one time. Okay. And then, then the, uh, the person signing off said, you're fine. And so, which is probably a testament to how difficult that is. Yeah. For yeah. So as long as you can land it, it's fine. Good stuff. They're, Good uh, stuff. Quite simple. Well, I, I wanted to come on to your transition from, from the military into, into the corporate world. Um, so you, you spent 20 years in the military and then moved into civilian life with, um, with Barclays. So what for you were the biggest challenges you found kind of moving from the military into the corporate world? And, and how did you overcome those? Well, first, I'd, you know, I'd start with, if I reflect honestly, the first six months at Barclays was the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? I found it... Um, you know, it's very fortunate through networking, um, which I'm sure we'll come back to later, between networking, the, the MBA between Columbia and London Business School, and the opportunity to meet some senior guys at Barclays opened an opportunity that was probably bigger than many or almost all would have ever thought I could have gotten myself into. So that's great. Yeah. The challenge was I was in that role and now with an expectation to deliver. I found the trading side of the, of the investment bank to be not that different than some of the folks I worked with in a, in a squadron. So the traders, great. They just want to win. So that was good. What I found particularly challenging is anyone who's worked in the company a long time, or the Marines, I think, for a career, or the British Army here in, in the UK, is you become institutionalized. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way for me to describe it is like every day I would go to work and rip off a layer of skin. That was 20 years of institutional history from the Marine okay, Corps, yeah. and now have to put on something else. And that is not a pleasant nor painless experience. And, but it was good. So we moved through it, you know, again, picked up some good mentors along the way. And one of them described it, and I, I like this, I think this is appropriate is this institutionalism is, he described it as a jungle. So you survived and made a career in one jungle. This is a new jungle. Yeah. It's not right or wrong or fair or not. It is simply a new jungle. Yeah. And it's up to you to learn to navigate and succeed in a new jungle. And as painful as that is, that is the way life works. And so there were some things like this. You know, there's new ways to achieve power. How do you achieve power when you're a cost center versus a revenue running a P&L? How are decisions made? What are the people dynamics? People's desires are different. You have compensation is a much bigger deal now because it's when it's not public, it's private. There's uh, short-term incentives, there's bonuses involved. And then how do you maneuver within it? And then one of my probably most, not shocking, but I was quite surprised is, and this will be, a, a, is the lack of manners. Right. And um, like, I would never ask a Lance Corporal to do something without saying, please, mm -hmm. you know, like in the heat of combat, you might not, but otherwise you're like, hey, this needs to be done. Please, thank you. You gent respect is intact, is an important uh, characteristics to have. And I found it very interesting that that wasn't the case in the private sector. And it's not a Barclays thing. I think in general, in the private sector, people, the manners are not as high as I think would be, uh, well, as high as I would have expected. It's a particular bugbear of mine, actually. I'm sure lots of people listening will, will, will feel the same way. It doesn't take a lot, does it, to, to say please and thank you. And it's, it's amazing how many people, it, it's things like opening the door for people and people not saying thank you. I just, I still, I kind of stand there for, for a while, just kind of holding the door going. 
Right. I don't make a thing of it, but at the same time, it, it's, uh, it's always disappointing. It is. And it matters. Mm. In the end, it matters. And so I, I it, it, but it was good, but it was but, but great experience. Barclay was, and, and to the organization's credit, they provided the opportunity to transition in a safe environment where I had a, a, a very good role. And, and, and the credit to the, the person that hired me, because I'll talk about the amount of risk that military veterans can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul, this, this man, he certainly took a lot of risk. Uh, hopefully it worked out. Interesting. But, uh, yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, so were, were you, uh, despite that tricky first six months, you made a really successful transition uh, and, and you've gone on to have a, a fantastic career in the corporate world. For anyone listening that might be going through a similar transition now then, what sort of advice would you have to them to help set themselves up for success making a similar sort of move? Okay. This is good. This is probably the most important question we're going to talk about. So I'm going to have a bit of a preface I wanted to, to go through because I, I think it's important because we're going to talk about networking. But when you network, I think these are some things to think about and because I, I want people to think about this as they, as they hear my answers or my thoughts around this. One is we all have a bias. And so when, when you network, what you hear from the other person is built on that, is based on that person's internal bias and what they've done. So when, if you listen to me or you, whenever you listen to someone else, what they've done will drive their bias. So I have a bias. So you can see, you know, my path has built in some bias. So my answers might be skewed to what, you know, hopefully it worked out well. So I will give answers in that regard. But each person needs to think about that when they're listening to someone else. Each person uh, has their own situation. And the other thing is, I'll probably stay away from the kind of more practical, simple steps of the transition because you can read about those online. There's some good books. You can Google, get on LinkedIn. There's lots, a number of very good military veterans have written some how-to guides. Those are great. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more like the graduate level mm-hmm. of some of the transition. And so, and with that, there's a couple of things I think that are really important. And this is a, you know, reality is it's hard. And I think this is what I want folks to, in military veterans or military folks transitioning or veterans themselves is it's hard and it's not fair. And that is the way it is. However, it is also the same way for everyone else. And so the environment we came from or are in and leaving is very conducive to being helpful. But in general, the private sector is not nearly as helpful. And so there's something to keep in mind. And, and what, what we want the world to be is not the way it is. So we'll talk about the way the world, you know, kind of the way the world is. And so um, you know, here, here are things that some things I would like people to consider is one is, and having now done some very senior hiring is we are risky. And that is the simple fact. We, we don't have P&L experience, so that'll always be a fact. We have cost center only experience, and we probably came from an organization where being effective was more important than being efficient. The private sector is not generally built that way. It's generally around efficiency. And if you want to be paid 100,000 pounds, you need to either save the company half a million or make it half a million to pay for you. And that's just you. And making decisions isn't just going to make a company 500,000 pounds or save it. That kind of money requires planning, execution, and, and getting that done. So I think we are risking. Now, at the same time, we hear and we do have amazing qualities, I would say, that are either innate or built over time from the service. And those are what we need to leverage. And then the last thing we need to get ourselves into is networking, because I think the way I look at it is networking is how you overcome the risk you, we may present. And that allows us to open up the number of people we know so that we can find the person willing to take the risk because not all hiring managers will take the risk. You know, potentially they were burned in the past, 
potentially they're just not sure and they may have their own internal biases as well. And I would also want folks to recognize is that once you come into the private sector and you become someone that hires folks as well is your professional reputation internally will be based partially on how the people you hire perform. So if you come in and don't perform, you have put the person that hired you at risk of their own professional reputation internally. And so these are, hence, you seem to be risky. And there's a natural hesitation. I am still the same way now. The largest recruitment firms probably still don't necessarily think of me to be the first guy on the shortlist because they're just like, he's just a little bit too different still. And it takes time to overcome that. And so these are some thoughts around that compensation and corporate level matter. And this is not glamorous to talk about, and it's not all about money, but the more money you can get paid in your first role and the more senior you can be, if that's what you want, the better you will be because it's, it is not impossible to make big step changes, but it's difficult to get away from your current income level. And likely asked whenever you, you know, you get to an advanced stage of a process of, of hiring and the temptation always right or wrong on the hiring side is to give them 10 to 20% more and call it good. Yeah. So the difference between coming in at hundred or 150 or more starts a train in motion that is difficult to overcome. And do you think naturally those coming out of the military because of the level of responsibility that they've had will naturally kind of in those more senior positions thrive that much more? Yes. I, I believe, you know, our junior mid-grade enlisted and officers can transition quite quickly and quite well. And, uh, it's, they're just younger yeah. and it's easier and their compensation expectations aren't as high. Their families aren't as large, uh, generally these kind of things. So I think it makes it easier for them. And then for the more senior officers or senior enlisted that are, are transitioning, I think there's this unique challenge of high compensation and responsibility expectations versus a lack of direct experience in that sector that they're potentially going into. And it's how do you find a way to bridge or balance between these, your expectations, certainly your capability versus the reality of the private sector. Uh, Not simple. Uh, I'll come back to this is why you need to meet as many people as possible to find that person. And then, and as always, then you have to deliver and find a way. And my experience of, you know, once, once you're a field grade officer, you know, you're not running a PNL. You're running, maybe you're running, maybe you're in command or you're in a support role or go back and forth. The private sector at the senior levels is demanding. And the idea that you're going to work 30 hours a week and make a lot of money uh, doesn't happen. And so now you may not want to do that and that's okay. Yeah. But if you do, it, it, sure. it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work. That's some great advice in there. Um, I wanted to come back to, we, we touched upon you transitioning and, and not doing so much flying now yeah. which i can imagine to some extent that, that when you see things like the top gun uh, trailer you probably get that that, yeah. that butterflies in the sure. stomach again how did you personally cope with with not flying or not having that that buzz that you get from flying because we know that there are a lot of people that make a successful transition, but there are also a lot that, particularly from the military or, or, or any other career, that making a big career shift can really struggle with that. And as a result, you know, there, there are mental health challenges. There are other things that come with that. Um, so do you have any, any advice to people that, that may be struggling with this big transition? Yeah. I, first, it's very real. And some will struggle. Um, and mental health is, is very important. I think 
many companies are getting better at acknowledging yeah, it. I, so I, is, I, I could speak to the U.S. military, which I know a bit better. The, the U.S. military is getting better as well as recognizing that the challenges that exist. It will happen. First, there's the normal hiring curve, right? Euphoria of getting hired and then the reality of it's a little bit tougher than I thought. So that'll you kind of go through this curve that kind of brings you down and hopefully you come back up the other side. What I find happens to some folks is they get a, a fairly decent role and they're pretty excited. And, and then they find they have to deliver in a new environment. Power is achieved a different way. They maybe were much more senior and now they're in a more, I would say, a more junior role, maybe not that happy. And it's sap, you know, maybe sap confidence from them. They know they can do it, but if they're struggling to deliver and this starts a, a negative cycle, like, you know, and, and if it, it, go, it can go down to either being just painful or into you know, a bit of depression as well. I think what I would encourage everyone to do is find a tribe. And I like this word now, tribe. I didn't start using it maybe a year ago, but I heard it from others. But I kind of like it. Like, I don't know what your tribe is. Find it. Yeah. And it might be, you, if it's a large organization, it might have a military network. It might be your personal network. It might be you volunteer. Would you want to find something that you find high value from right away or have? Because work is, you know, it's not glamorous and it might be painful at times. Probably have to do it. So find, if you are struggling or just want to get ahead of it, find the tribe that you like. I enjoy doing CrossFit, so I like the CrossFit tribe a little bit. Not terribly good at it, but enjoy it. Do I mentor as well and enjoy that. I speak at London Business School at times. And then also, and for folks to find mentors and people to help them on the journey. Because it's not... It's not simple. No, I really, I, lo I love that. Uh, and we will come back to mentorship in a bit, which is very important for this particular podcast. You've written about the comparisons between the corporate world and military life. What for you were the key skills and experiences from your time as a Marine that have helped you succeed in the business world? A couple of thoughts come to mind. I think the learning and developing the ability to communicate a compelling story and vision I think was very helpful. Communication, we have in the Marine Corps, we'll talk about what do I know, who needs to know it, and have I told them? Remarkably simple. You keep your Marines informed. It's one of the you know, Marine Corps leadership principles. Keep your Marines informed, good or bad. Because they just, you know, curiosity is a human human uh, you know, trait that we want to know what's going on, even if it's bad. Yeah. And remarkably, people will take tough news better than if you didn't tell them at all. So this is, you know, communication was a, a big piece around perseverance, personal perseverance, team perseverance. What does that mean? Uh, I had this expression. So if you had been in my last couple of companies, the first thing you would probably hear me say every morning is, you know, how you do? And they're like living the dream. And I love this expression. I use it 50 times a day probably. <laughs> but you have to, I think enthusiasm is a, cr a critical part of being, especially a leader. There are going to be tough days and tough things to do and communicate. And you have to be enthusiastic, even if you have to fake it. And people at work uh, here now will say, like, oh, you know, every day is not an amazing day. And I'm like, you're right. But could you imagine walking in front up and standing in front of 250 Marines and going, you know, I had a tough weekend and the car broke down this morning and I had to walk to work. Could you imagine telling 250 people that that's how your yeah. day started? No, like <laughs> that team will not perform that day as well as if you would have walked up there and, and you can be authentic. Yeah. still be enthusiastic. Living the dream. Living the dream. <laughs> so, I love uh, that, Chris. Even if yeah. you have to fake it. But uh, I think it's really important. So this perseverance, soft skills um, are incredibly important. I, I like the trait of loyalty. It's a very important trait to me, willingness to learn. And, and you know, th these things uh, I think are I have taken and uh, 
are helpful. That's really great. I want to touch a little bit on, on the, your corporate career and, and also just in general job searching. So you've worked for a couple of different companies now across multiple regions, actually, uh, in, in pretty high profile roles. What for you, since you've been in the corporate world, has been the biggest challenge? It would be good for our listeners just to hear a bit about that experience. And it took a bit to develop, right? So I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know when I started Barclays. So that's a very easy thing to say. But I think what I realized is I was late to the game. And it's not talked about that much when you're in. So I probably could have left the Marine around 33 at the first opportunity, but was enjoying it. Was, yeah, well, let's make a career. Let's keep going and see where this leads. But no one told me, listen, everyone you're going to compete with in the private sector right now just got their MBA or is in, deeply experienced in something. And in five years from now, we'll be racing ahead of you. And that's what I joined up with. And so I realized I was late to the game. And my, my personal desire is to run a medium to large size company. And to do that, it became clear to me that I was going to have to make step changes in my career each role. And so that's what I went after. And so, you know, as always, network, 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 deliver when you're in a role because you have to have clear deliverables and then find the next opportunity. And I would say a tactic I took was being willing to take more risks than most people yeah. would in roles. And mostly it's worked out and there's been some setbacks, some big jumps. And I'm in, and now that I would say essentially caught my peers, which is great and we'll see where it goes. But I think for me, it was late to the game and the need to take big step changes yeah. and the risks associated with that uh, to do it. Yeah, and that kind of leads me on to my next question about how you've decided to make the move. So I guess to some extent you, you've answered that in that you know, you're, you're willing to push yourself, you're willing to take that bigger risk and, uh, and step up. But how have you gone about the job search? Are there particular things you'd recommend people do? We'll start with the importance of networking. So we'll start with this because I think this is just an important topic. I'll more clearly answer the question is life is as it is, not how we want it. Therefore, we know it's true. Who you know is no more important than what you know. And that is a life reality. Yeah, and sad you know, sometimes, but sad. very true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's just, I think it is the way it is. You have to deliver and roll and these things are very important. Nepotism does occur, to, and we're not talking about that. So you have to network. And when I talk about networking, I mean working, not just having pints with friends. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, you know, for military folks transitioning, a minimum a year out, you need to start networking. And I talk about it's an hour a day, minimum is the amount of network you need to do. So if you're not on LinkedIn, sending emails, maybe you tweet for the first time, you connect with all the people you've known in the past, it's an hour a day. And that's what it's gonna take. Because yeah. you need to open the funnel to the number of people you know who will take the risk on you to hire you. This is kind of how it starts. And so, and I continue that now, even in the private sector, I enjoy networking and like connecting other folks to other folks. And I think this has led my career as well because i networked and met folks and it's how we james you and i met yeah, that no, way so exactly. i think it's really important and so that's how my career has advanced as well so i you know i went to atlas mara by following an exec from barclays who i met internally and then my role with digicel in the caribbean was based on a network contact who was connected with a guest lecturer at london business school who i became connected with and then actually an old barclays contact is who connected me to pmi like it matters. Yeah. And so this, it's really about networking. And I have this, I don't think this is good, translates well, but I like, so you've heard about the power of the crowd. So, you know, like 
how in the end the crowd is almost always right. When you get a big enough crowd and you ask a question, it almost gets the answer right very closely. So what if the, what if your network was big enough to act as the crowd that took you to your next role? And this is what I think is kind of interesting. So some people are like, how did you end up where you are now? And I'm like, well, I really don't know. It's just how I, I just got there. And, you know, you obviously go through an interviewing process and these things. And I think for military veterans or people who have unique backgrounds, the crap, the network in your crowd is critically important because it's unlikely you're going to show up on a short list of a traditional recruitment firm because, by the way, they get paid when you get hired. You're risky already. They're even smarter than you are. So they're not going to put you on the short list. That's just the way it's going to be. So you got to use your network and your crowd. So I kind of like this idea of the crowd taking you on a, on a journey. I like that. That probably has a bit of risk associated with it as yeah, well, yeah. But, it, but it's kind of exciting. Yeah. And like, and the crowd will take care of you. Yeah. I'm a huge believer in that. I think um, JBO wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the crowd and the network. We've grown through word of mouth. Absolutely. And I think there's a, it's, it's seen as a bit of a dirty word amongst some people, but actually networks is, is a wonderful thing. If it's done in the right way Absolutely. and in the right spirit, I think it can just open your, your mind and your opportunities beyond belief. And you meet some of the most amazing That's, people. Exactly. And, you know, people, people want to help. Mm. It's almost universal. That, yeah. People want to help. They can't always help you at that moment in time. But people want to help. And by returning the favor, and actually, an important part of networking is actually offering the first favor or first bit of help. So you, you offer some help, even if it's something you know the person doesn't need and they're maybe more senior than you or a different organization or different structure, offer something. And then as a, as a matter of good faith, uh, they'll probably say, no, it doesn't matter. And then you, you go from there. Yeah, great. No, it's a, I think it's, it's a really, really powerful. And, and, and I, th I hope anyone listening that's, that's maybe a little bit nervous of, of, of getting out there and, and doing that, especially if they're looking to move jobs. I, I thoroughly agree with Chris on the power of networking. I'm conscious of time. So I want to come on to uh, just having a quick chat about building high-performing teams, because I know you, you've done that throughout your whole career. What for you makes a great team? I think a team that understands its purpose is, is critical. Like, you know, we'll, you know, we'll talk about why, how, what with Simon Sinek. So helpful. Uh, he probably didn't come up with it, but he's talked about it a great deal. Super applicable. You know, I just will also note that in the, how we do mission command in the Marine Corps, we have commander's intent, which is purpose, method, end state, which is why, how, what. So he didn't come up with anything new and it's been around for, it's actually been around for thousands of years, but uh, purpose matters. And people do a lot more with purpose. I like the idea of passion, you know, a bit of a bit of enthusiasm, always helpful. And that's kind of like an innate or raw with a team. And and then, you know, clear priorities. What do, what's our mission? What are our three to five priorities? Are they properly resourced to actually be able to deliver? It? And do you have the right team members in the team to do it? If you do, don't get them in. And if it's if you have some of the wrong team members, get them out. Yeah, and which is equally, arguably more important, isn't it? It is, and I um, and this is what I, I have um, a note here is making people calls are tough around people, especially on the exit side. But I have this kind of belief: no people problem gets better with age. People problems almost never solve themselves. Yeah. You need to solve them, and as a manager or leader. You need to grab the bowl and you do it properly and lawfully and ethically correct, but you move on because yeah. they don't get better with age yeah. and they can be, become, if they're not already, a cancer of your team. So, And I, I'll be honest, in, in my seven years of JBM, 
thankfully there haven't been too many uh, challenges in that respect but I think the the times where we have had to make difficult calls I think in the earlier part of my career I let things go on far too long you know as a sense of loyalty and and, and you know and, what, and we've always built a kind of very much a family vibe and it, it feels like it was like breaking up with a girlfriend or yeah, someone it, yeah. it's a particularly challenging experience but actually it does make you stronger and it's often it's in the best interest of the individual at hand, Correct. isn't it? And it's Absolutely. better to do that quicker Absolutely. and in the right way. So in terms of how you've gone about building your teams, obviously I assume it's, it's obviously different in a military setting, yeah. but how have you done that? And what advice would you have for anyone that's listening who wants to build a world-class team? Perhaps maybe mistakes that often people make that they could avoid. Yeah, let me talk about like, in, like internally. So if you either inherit a team or are given team members at times, you know, this happens as well to manage that you weren't, maybe weren't expecting is in my first, I try to suspend all judgment and treat them the same as everyone else that I treat in the team because sometimes people have not been well led or well managed and they are capable of amazing things if in the right place and treated uh, differently or properly. So I, I start with that on the internal side. And then if they work, fantastic. If they don't, let's let's be relatively expeditious about making a change if it's needed. And to be clear, high-performing teams have people of different capability. Because if you have 10 A-plus players, that team is probably not high-performing. Because you got to deal with 10 A-plus players, and they don't always work well together and are difficult to manage. So you, And in different places and times, that's hard to do. So it's okay. I think when, when I look externally and look to build teams from folks I recruit or the teams I'm with recruit, I like the idea of, it is not my words, very simple, like hire people smarter than I am. You know, like lots of people say like, and I, but I believe this, hire people smarter than, than you are and then hire, get them in and let them run and let them do what they're great at and that you hired them for. And I think this is very helpful. I tend to hire people not on an age basis, but on a skill base, kind of a skills maturity basis, more junior than some would, because I like the ability to stretch people and have them grow mm. because you can keep them longer. And they um, often, especially if they're smart and have high levels of initiative, they'll run. Yeah. And I and I like people who can run. And then you just guide them along the way, much easier than having to prod them from behind. Totally. So I like I like this idea. They don't have to be young in age, but I don't mind having them young. And, and then provide them with this you know, vision, ensure they believe it. Pretty candid when I interview what the role is, what it's not, what our challenges that we're trying to solve are. And again, it builds the premise of this is what our purpose is and yeah. this is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So if you understand that and it still is exciting and you're still in the game, they come in with no false pretenses. Yeah. And this is a challenge. I think sometimes people are tempted to make it sound glamorous. And the reality is, first of all, work is generally not that glamorous anyway. And the roles won't be that glamorous. And you won't have as much authority as they told you you were going to have. So I'd rather just be quite open about it so that people can come in. I like this idea of 30 days, no deliverables. Just meet people. If you're in a bigger company, you can do this. 30 days, no deliverables. You need to build your internal network as fast as possible. Because by 90 days, I want you delivering in six months, you're fully fledged member of the team. And so I kind of like this. It helps me. That's my expectations. It keeps my expectations a bit lower. Gives that person time to get on board, get themselves embedded, and then deliver. And, and I think, you know, and the mistakes we learn from, I think in general, the best hiring managers are maybe 70, 
success with external hires, maybe internals as well, but external hires, if you make a mishire, handle it quickly, you know, ethically, professionally. And own it. Make, you know? Yeah, own it. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. This, it, it happens. It will happen. And so when it does happen, it's okay. You know, and the other person probably knows it's a mishire as well. I think somebody said that, which is really interesting. And I've seen this from, from clients in the past. Naturally, you want to sell to people to get them in and, and, and sell them the dream. But actually, I think in this day and age, candidates really appreciate transparency. They, the number of times I speak to people and, and typically our clients are very candid and open. You know, and I've worked with you as a client. I know exactly how you are. And I think that is really important because there's no point bringing someone under false pretenses. And I think people really respect that. And actually, it means they can go in eyes wide open and hopefully make the right decision if it goes all the way. And that's really interesting. I guess alongside building a great team, these days, culture is everything, particularly in terms of trying to attract talent, but also retain great people. So in your career, has there been a particular culture that you've been a part of that stands out? And if so, why was that? Yeah, so I, my first private sector role was here at Barclays, and then uh, I followed at Barclays, the exec, to Atlas Mora. And we were based in Dubai, and we were buying banks in Africa and, and trying to cre create an African bank. It has had challenges. And so with that being said, the first, you know, I really think back to like, the first year I was there, like we had a great CEO. John was, uh, was wonderful, a great leader, thoughtful, uh, loyal, and we had a great vision. And we talked about we're going to build the best bank in Africa. That hasn't happened, and there's a lot of other great African banks. But... With the sense of purpose around, we're going to build the best bank in Africa. And we had a hashtag of build, building the best bank in Africa. And it, we, and it was really powerful and it helped create a culture that was hardworking, dedicated, and in aligned to that, uh, to that purpose. And I think this is really important. And so this was a, a nice set, you know, setup of uh, you know, good leader, vision, uh, purpose. And, and it, was, it was quite exciting, actually. And so and people bought it. And it was simple. The, the vision has to be the clarity that clarity. is so important i know like was it was it unrealistic well, i don't know but we were going to build the best bank in africa yeah and who said we couldn't fair enough so it was, uh, great. So it was a good start i like it yeah awesome well chris i'm sad to say we're, we're pretty much at the end here but i, I wanted to, to wrap up with um, a couple of quick final questions sure. which i know our listeners would, would love to hear your answers on first one is you've done a lot of interviewing what's your favorite interview question and, and why so I'm going to give you two because the, the, second one, the second one's my favorite. I'm just hesitant to ask it every time. Uh, I'll start every uh, interview generally with, you know, either tell me about yourself or ask the person, where are you? Okay. Because I think it's, it's a disarming question. It gives people the opportunity to, to put their first foot forward and go, I'll be very candid. I'm not the best technical interviewer. I mean, like if it's a skills-based interview, I'm out. That is not how I'm going to help, you know, but uh, the fit culture sense of purpose and initiative that that's this is what i'm really interviewing for anyway uh so i like this question as it's disarming and it starts and i like this question around where are you because people will step back and go where am i like in life and that's how they'll answer it as well my favorite question is is what would your mother say about you and love that and i've heard one person use it that's why i now have it in my repertoire i'm a little hesitant to ask it every time because it's a bit of a personal question and I'm not even like you imagine yeah, their mother's yeah. passed away. And yeah, I'm like, oh my oh, God, yeah. it might open up a really bad yeah. set, a thing. But at the same time, someone asked it for me one time and what this person told me, because I asked him about the question is, this person felt that the person couldn't make up a story or lie fast enough to answer the question because it surprised them. 
And so they would actually be, be remarkably candid yeah. what their mother would say about them. And then it makes me reflect what my mother would say because she was a, you know, she was a, a working woman and a farm woman as well. And the, to this day, the simple fact I make as much money as, as I do and all I do is write emails and have phone calls blows her mind. <laughs> and she would say, clearly I'm overpaid and, and in roles of responsibility I should not have. So, uh, um, I but I like it. that question love as it. well. That's yeah. a great one. That's a great one. And I guess the penultimate question for me is, is it's got to come back to mentorship. So what does it mean to you, mentorship? I know you do mentor a lot. I've benefited from some great mentorship from you over the years. And do you have any specific mentors yourself now or, or have done? Yeah, in the absolutely. Past? You know, I, you know, I probably have five, I don't know, five or six fairly senior folks spread around the world that I've worked with or come to know that are very important to me. And I nurture those relationships proactively, like reach out, uh, talk to them. So like, I'm, I'm in London this week. It's a great opportunity to meet a few, couple of them, which I will. Uh, I will make it happen because it's important. And they've been very helpful to me over the years. As always with mentors, they ebb and flow. And one will become more important than others at different stages of life and the, uh, of the year. But they're really, they're really important. How did you select them and what, what sort of backgrounds do they have out of interest? I think the... Let's see. They're quite, their backgrounds are quite different. I would say this is probably generally true. They're much more senior in, uh, than I am. And so they've been in very senior roles and in industry and in a number of different countries. And so what I, I found someone that was interesting and I, and maybe we're like, man, I could learn, I could learn something here from this person. It would be great to get to know them. And it can't be too forward. Like, Hey, can you, will you be my mentor? That doesn't work. But again, so you network. You, you have a cup of coffee with them. Well, first, you introduce yourself. Let's just let's start from the beginning. Whether you heard them as a lecturer at London Business School, that they were someone connected from a different connection than your network, you connect with them, have a cup of coffee, a glass of beer, a glass of wine, and then you get to know them. And, and then you just reach out to them and you share. People want to help. And in the right way, you share your business or personal challenge or what you're working on and you get feedback. You may not like it. And you may wish they would tell you something more sugar-coated but the best mentors are pretty pragmatic and remind you of the way life is yeah, definitely that's great and finally chris we work with a lot of people that are at crossroads in their careers or, or, or even life and and really in need of that sort of mentorship that we've talked about today what final piece of advice would you leave those sorts of people that might be listening to this what, what final piece of advice would you give them i'll leave them with the best piece of advice i've received which is today is the first day of the rest of your life and the choice is yours. And so when you wake up in the morning, it's yours. And you just, and then I would say be bold because I think, you know, we are probably not as risk or too risk adverse in life, but each family or person is different. Be bold and go. Love it. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank it's you for having me. It's been such James. a pleasure seeing you. Yeah, James, um, been great. It's fantastic. And um, yeah, everyone here at JBM uh, wishes you all the very best for 2020. Yeah, amazing. We're almost there. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks James. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.